I'm a believer of doing what you need to do today right. Every day, you've got to get today right. And one day turns into a week, a week turns into a month, a month turns into a year. Get these things right. Do the right things every day. And they just add up. They just add up. And for me, that's a little bit easier to digest and it has served me well. Welcome to In the Thick of It. I'm your host, Scott Hallrow. In this episode, I had the chance to learn the story of Hector Perez, founder and CEO of Quantum FBI. His journey from working in his father's print shop as a teenager to leading a successful finance and accounting firm with offices in New York and Columbia. Hector and I discussed the importance of wowing clients with exceptional service, how company values impact hiring, and what progress looks like day-to-day for founders in the midst of growing and building their business. He has a passion for bringing clients value through financial insights and is focused on building a mission-driven culture. Hector, thank you so much for being a guest on In the Thick of It. We're grateful to have you today. Sure. Great to be here, Scott. Well, man, let's start with this. Where are you currently based out of? I personally live in Westfield, New Jersey, but our office is out of New York City. Great. And I know we'll talk more about this as we get further into the conversation, but you've got offices other places in the world as well. Is that right? We do. We're headquartered in New York City, as I've said, but we also have an operation out of Colombia and South America. Awesome. Let's take a trip down memory lane. Where did you grow up? I am a New Yorker born and raised. It comes out in your in your voice. Does it? <laughs> so what was it like? You grew up in the city? I grew up in one of the New York suburbs. As far as I'm concerned, growing up was was just great. I'm one of four boys. We had a great childhood. I'm sure there were some challenging times, but if there were, we didn't know anything about it. And it was just a great, a great childhood, really. What did your parents do? My mom worked as a seamstress and my dad owned a printing business. Worked for one for a long time. And at some point he, like me, decided, hey, I want to go out on my own and build the company himself. As a kid growing up, were you working in the printing business with him? No one got out of working in the printing business. Everybody worked in the printing business, but it was a great experience. It was really a great experience. And a lot of things that I learned uh, from that experience that I didn't realize was valuable to me even today, but you just pick up on a lot of things. What were the kinds of jobs your dad had you doing? Accounting for one, but we had to get on the machines like anybody else, you know, dealing with people issues, hiring, working with the landlord contracts, pricing, those types of things. He, He kind of threw us into. And how old were you when your dad started the business? I probably was 14 years old. Okay. So you were a teenager. It's not like you were yeah. you know, seven, eight years old working a printing press. Right. No, I wasn't seven or eight years old. But, you know, early on when he, you know, I can remember at the age of eight, sometimes I would go to work with him on Saturdays, right? When he was, he was managing the printing press for someone else's business, he would have us come in sometimes on Saturdays and we'd, you know, stuff boxes and make sure that things were aligned properly. We could teach us how to check to make sure quality control, those kinds of things, you know, things that an eight-year-old could possibly do. And did you get paid or was this just part of the expectation of being a family member? Cuban sandwich at lunchtime. There you go. Got to earn your keep. They were good though. (laughs) What was school like for you? Were you a good student? Did you go to public school, private school? Yeah, I went to public school. I uh, went to high school, Richmond Hill High School. I think school was... You know, it was okay. I was I was a good student. You know, got into college, attended Pace University, 
and was a good student there. Goal out of school was to get a job at a big four firm. Mission accomplished. I think seven months before graduation, I already had my job. So all of that worked out as as well as it could have, I think. So when I was in school, all of my friends that went into public accounting, we had a five-year program that they had to go through where you got your bachelor's and your master's in that time because to sit for the CPA exam, you had to have a certain number of, of hours. Was yours a similar kind of a program? This is where the difference in our age shows because I am pre, I am pre-five-year program, so I got away with the four-year program, but definitely had to sit for that long, uh, difficult exam. Do you still have nightmares about the CPA exam or was that like a and yeah, no big I, deal? Let's say I didn't pass all four on my first shot, but we got it done in, I think, three rounds. Badge of honor. It suited me well, and I never had to do it again. There you go. I've said this before many times, but among the happiest days of my life were the days I completed managerial and financial accounting in college. I was not a C student, but I got C's in both and couldn't have been happier just to have passed. So... God bless you for making it all the way through and, and actually getting the CPA. I am with you. Thanks. Let's go back to you were at Coopers and Librand and a few years in, Pricewaterhouse came in, became PwC. What was that transition like? Was it kind of a non-event? We had the rumblings, but as far as I was concerned, you know, it was business as usual. I was on a pretty large account. Nothing changed there, even two years after the, after the transaction, because we just kept on doing what we were doing. And it was pretty seamless for me. So one of the things that always boggled my mind for my my friends that wanted a public accounting was they're based out of the Dallas office, but every week they were someplace else. And it was because the local partner that was out of the Dallas office had a relationship with somebody in San Francisco. And because they had the relationship, it was their account, it was their team. Was it like that for you? And were you were you traveling a ton? For me earlier, at least in the in the time where I was part of audit, I didn't travel as much because I was focused on financial services, New York City being the financial capital. You know, I was going downtown, midtown, but it was all New York City for the most part. While I was in audit, things certainly changed, you know, later on in my career. So you talk about when you were in audit, where did you go to after audit? I think it was six or seven years in. I was lucky enough to get tapped by the vice chairman of the firm to join him. He was the CFO of the firm at the time. And I went in to work uh, in the office of the CFO, working at PwC, but focused on PwC. So I got a chance to look at PwC as a business, which is was a very interesting perspective. Most of my colleagues didn't really think about the firm that way as a business. We were more focused on client service, but it was a really worthwhile experience for me. And that was all internal. And I did that for about three years. The vice chairman, before he joined, he became the CFO of the firm. He used to lead M&A. So after about three years with him, he said, okay, you're done with me. Go do deals. You're a deal guy. And that took me to M&A advisory. And that's when the travel started. And travel was pretty brutal. It was gone for not days, but weeks at a time. And I did a lot of transactions in the US and Latin America. So I was down in Brazil, Argentina, Chile, a lot. And I think that's what probably helped me get into Colombia and feel comfortable kind of starting an operation out there. And as far as the the work you were doing in M&A, was it actually advising and helping put together the deal structure or were you part of the team doing all the due diligence and, you know, quality of earnings, that kind of stuff? Right. So they call it financial due diligence. So it's quality of earnings, quality of assets, really on the assessing the companies from a finance perspective. Okay. 
So by the time you got involved, the, the deal structure was already kind of in place and you were helping the acquiring firm make sure that they were getting what they thought they were getting. Yeah, that's one of the things about being an accountant. You get called last. So all that stuff was done ahead of time. And we came in, you know, kind of on the back end trying to make sure, okay, make sure that the numbers work. And now we're getting into substantiating the valuation, right? So at that point, it's pretty far down the process. And uh, they'd call us in and that was a lot of work, but it was toward the latter part of the transaction, I would say. Yeah. So is that a lot of late nights and boardroom pizza? Late nights, long days, many weekends. Many times you thought you were coming home, but you weren't. But, you know, I will say, you know, that all sounds bad, but it was probably the, prior to quantum, probably the best work I'd ever done. It just, I learned so much about transactions, about companies, what they look at, uh, how to really analyze them. It wasn't repetitive. It was, uh, as uh, the leader of my group would call it, the fast lane. So at this point, you're probably, what, mid-30s, early 30s? Yeah, I would say I was in my mid-30s. At that point, you know, really doing well. It was rough work, but I think really great work. Were you married at the time? I kind of got married in the middle of it. In the middle. So at first, when I started, I wasn't. But then, you know, midway through, I did get married while I was in that group. Okay. Most people that stay at a public accounting firm for 15 years, they go the partner track and, you know, that's it for them. After 15 years, what caused you to say, I think I'm going to, I'm going to pull out? You know, primary thing was 2008 happened and, you know, financial crisis, you know, the deals were drying up because I could operate in Latin America. I was still pretty busy doing transactions in Brazil and all, but eventually that dried up as well. And I remember the firm was, uh, was getting a little iffy on the, the group. And my mentor at the time said, you know, things are getting a little iffy. Maybe you should get out of there until things come back. And the, what they counseled me to do is to go back to audit. And I said, oh, no, no, not audit. You know, anything but not audit. So after a little bit of arm twisting, you know, I agreed to do it for a year. I committed only one year. I said, if the, if the deals aren't back in one year, you know, that's it. That's why I'm handing it up. One year later, I was gone. For those who remember the financial crisis, it was pretty significant. The company that I worked for at the time closed its doors on July 5th or 6th of 2009. And so, yes, I, I remember it was, it was quite brutal. I think I was fine with it. I think the deals work was re- pretty grueling. They pretty much owned you at the time and you can just get the call, get on the next plane. So I don't know if I was, you know, maybe I got a, an easy out, to be honest. I don't know how sustainable it was for me and what my objectives and goals were in life, you know, starting a family, all that. But for me, for everyone who does it, it's great. But I think for me, I, was, I wasn't really sure anyway. So I think it just worked out. What happened after PwC? I think after PwC, I took a, a gig at a boutique consulting firm working for private equity, catering toward private equity. And I did that for a couple of years. And then I got asked to join TIAA to help them with some large transactions they were trying to get done. So my deal experience in financial services really worked well with that. It was a former colleague that knew my experience. He asked me to go there and help him with that. And I did that. So I, I joined TIAA. We got some deals done. Uh, and that was great. It worked out well. But uh, eventually there was a little deal fatigue and I was looking for another role. At the time, my wife was at Columbia Business School getting her MBA. And I learned that a spousal benefit was that I could go to class for free. 
So I knew I had a two-year window to take advantage of this opportunity. So I decided to leave, put on a backpack and a baseball cap and go to class. You weren't going to get the degree at the end. You weren't going to sit for the exams, but you got to audit all these classes and just soak up the knowledge. That's right. And first class I took was entrepreneurship. And there it starts. Going back to TIA for just a minute, for those who don't know, can you talk about what they do? I mean, it's a big name, but I don't think it's quite the household name that PwC is. Right. TIA is a very large retirement company. It's kind of a little bit, uh, it caters to basically the public good. Those who are in teachers, doctors, all those who need to invest their money for their future. So it's a, a retirement shop, if you will, and an asset manager. Um, that being a big part of their business of probably managing, you know, at the time I was there was 850 billion in assets, uh, close to a trillion in assets. They're probably more now. I was leading the FP&A for their asset management division. And I think you mentioned you were, there were still some deal stuff there. Were you making investments in privately held companies or were you figuring out where in the public markets you were going to invest? We were primarily buying up other asset management shops. So they wanted to increase their asset management presence and really build that arm of the business. And they were doing it, you know, certainly they had one internally, but if they were really going to do that, they needed to acquire more asset managers. And I was helping with those. And you might see right now that they are, their asset manager arm is now under rebranded as Nuveen, a TIAA company. And Nuveen was one of those large transactions. You've got to see a lot of deals over the years to the extent that you can talk about it without, you know, violating any long-standing confidentiality agreements. What was one of the most interesting ones that you, you got to be a part of? Yeah, I think the more complex the deal, the the more interesting it is. I think, you know, when you start getting into other territories, you know, you could have, I remember one deal in particular, there was, the client was from the UK, the target was, had operations in Brazil, Argentina, Chile. Uh, I had a team from the US, so we're going across you know, they, we're talking about working with three continents and four different time zones. And, uh, you know, it, it really showed me a lot of what I could do. You're dealing a lot with lawyers. You're getting all these people together and really battling out issues around a transaction, which is, as I said, it really tests your, your skills, but that's where you learn the most. Yeah. I got to imagine with that many countries in play that there's a lot of cultural differences too. And you're dealing with language, you're dealing with time zone, you're dealing with geography, but cultural norms in Brazil are probably a little bit different than they are in the UK. Yeah, for sure. But you know, that's where you learn how to flex, right? And I think that's when you learn the most, right? When you're most uncomfortable and you realize when you come out on the other end of it and you were able to pull it off, you learn a lot about yourself and what you're able to do. And no doubt that was probably the transaction I was most paranoid about going in but taught me the most about myself, right? What you can do and just step-by-step, step, what do I have to do first? What do I have to do second? What do I have to do third? What can I make sure I don't drop the ball on this? All the other things are important, but these three things are the most important. Make sure you get those right. Uh, and you just evolve from there, right? You know, also relying on your team, very important. But even though I, Peter is a great firm and they always, you know, you always had their back, so. So jumping back to kind of where we were a minute ago, your wife is getting her MBA at Columbia, big, you know, top, top business school. And you get to ride along for free. What was that like? Yeah. Well, since I didn't have to, I wasn't working at the time. I got very involved with a cohort. So they got to know me. I was at drinks after class. I was there. International trip. 
I was there. Events on the weekends, I was there. So that allowed me to build a great relationship with her cohort. And before I, I knew it, because they knew my background, they'd say, hey, Hector, I know someone needs some help in finance. Would you help them out? And there went my first gig. And then there was a second, and then there was a third. So that's how I really got started uh, really thinking about going out on my own because I was enjoying that work. I personally didn't go back and get a master's, but pretty much everybody I know who's gone through an MBA program, the cohort gets really, really close. And it has, for many friends of mine, it's created other lifelong friendships. Are you still tight with that group of people? Yeah, I, absolutely. I mean, from there, you go to weddings, you meet the parents, you attend other events, you you know, you're going to their house, they're going to your house, you're, you know, you can go vacationing together. So it's just like any relationships, if you're a person who appreciates relationships, that would be no different. And so we have kept in touch and are kind of tight with a few folks there, for sure. So you make these connections, you built these relationships, and, and they know Hector's the accounting guy, he's the deal guy, and they just start saying, hey, I've got a friend that could use your help. Here's a project. Right. Just one, then another, then another. And were those projects pretty similar in nature or were they all over the board? They were similar in nature. When you think about what they were going through, it was pretty similar. And I think that's what really got me thinking about launching a firm. I said, okay, well, I see these similarities. I would define the key issues to be the following. If I were going to put some strategy behind this, what would I build? What would I build to really solve this problem? And I just started going about it that way. I remember even putting a business plan together and I even got two Columbia professors to go through my business plan. That's how close I was with, <laughs> with the cohort. And they were more than happy to do that with you. More than happy to do that. They were great. Very, very valuable. Those projects, you got a front row seat and that kind of was the inspiration behind starting Quantum? Yeah, I think that was where it started. And I think then you had to kind of really start doing some market research and say, you know, what is really the solution? What is happening and why is it happening? And where is it going? And one of the things I noticed is that, you know, whether you're talking about a private company or early stage company or even large companies that, like the ones that I've worked at before, the world of finance has some similar issues around technology, around data. But I also noticed that with everything getting into the cloud, there was more data around than anything. And most people weren't really using the data. It was just kind of sitting there. And you can learn a lot from your company if you just analyze the data, but these companies didn't have the ability to do that. They were basically using finance in its simplest form and not really leveraging the power of it. So I started to ask senior finance people, CFOs, VPs of finance, why is that? So I polled people for the better part of six months. I mean, across industries, around the country, different stages of, of maturity to understand where folks were with data and their finance functions. And I heard a lot of things, but there were three things. First of all, no one was where they wanted to be as it related to data, but everyone felt the pressure of data and the need to get up to speed on data. But I wanted to understand why. And I heard three common reasons why they weren't where they wanted to be. And that's what I sought, I went out to solve for, those three things. And those were, didn't have the budget, don't have the talent, the skill set, and don't know where to start. And those were the three things that we sought to set, you know, to Three problems that we solve, so you sought to solve. So when you're talking to these senior finance professionals, 
did they have a clear idea of what they wanted to be able to do with the data? Or was it more of a, I know we have data, I know we should be doing something, but I don't even know what that is. I think they had an idea that they know that what they needed to do, they wanted to do more, but they couldn't do more because they didn't have the tools or the bandwidth or the budget to do more. They were asked to do more, but they it was almost like you had one hand tied behind your back because you know this information is there, but you spent so much time doing the basic stuff that you couldn't get at the more valuable stuff. And that was a source of frustration for just about every finance person I, I talked to. And these groups that you were working with at the time, were they primarily New York, New Jersey, Northeast U.S. or? All over the U.S. and different uh, industries. That's what I found quite interesting, that no matter where I went, no one was where they wanted to be. But there were three reasons that they kept that I kept hearing over and over. So your dad had the print shop and you got a front row seat for what it was like to run a business. You get great experience at PwC. You get to audit a Columbia MBA starting with an entrepreneurship class. And you've kind of got this, you found these commonalities among these businesses that, that need help. Do you remember the moment that you just decided, hey, let's go do this? I do. I guess coming from a family that has entrepreneurship in their background, you know, be, besides my dad, my brothers, and I have two brothers that are entrepreneurs as well. So it was always, around. And I always wondered if I had it, could I pull this off? So I thought, you know, if not now, when? And, you know, it's something you really have to think about, right? Because, you know, I was recently married, want to get a family going, have aspirations, you know, in your life, it was going to go a certain way. And up until then, I was a big corporate guy. Right? So I really had to think about it, but I really was enjoying what I was doing. And I know that I myself, even though I was part of large organizations, I was frustrated by the data issue myself as a finance professional. So, you know, if you're a big company, you have some money you can throw at the problem. doesn't mean you have it all right, but you can throw that. But if you're in the middle market or early stage company, not so much, right? But I also understood that there was an opportunity when you get around these companies, they can make decisions much faster. When you are a large, in part of a large organization, the, the layers of decisions the layers you have to go through to get an approval on something, it just, you know, you might give up before you get the, the yes you're looking for. Totally understand that. Having to deal with larger, more bureaucratic organizations was part of what caused me to make my jump and you know, get to work in, in smaller organizations. And sounds like uh, there's some shared um, experience there. Going back to that 14-year-old kid working in the print shop, was it in the back of your mind that early that you might want to do something on your own? Or was it something that was came along in, in college or at PwC? I think, you know, when you're when you're a kid, you know, you always hear about having your own business, having your own business. You know, the particularly if you if you have your your father has his own business and you can see the way your life changes when that happens, you know, and things go well, you know, you aspire to do the same. And so that was something I would have in the back of my mind, but I didn't know what business it would be. I didn't want to be a pre-shop, but I thought we could do something. I could do something, you know, as a kid. And then eventually when you go into big corporate and that was your goal, then you're pretty happy there. Big firm like that, a lot of uh, fanfare, flights, business class, 
you know, you're kind of liking that, right? But eventually that wears off and you start thinking about life a little differently and you start thinking about other things. So um, I guess what year was it that Quantum came to be? We launched Quantum in 2016. And when you started, was it just yourself or did you have a team in place? It was just me at the beginning and it was more as an advisor to these companies, really, what is that you need? How can I help you? How, with the background that I have? And as I went through these companies and I saw the commonalities, I said, you know what? The need that they have is well before, right? It's, you can be an advisor, but you have to analyze the information. And if the information you have is not good, then, you know, as they say, garbage in, garbage out. And that's something that was a bit of a challenge. So we sought to improve the finance function almost from the ground up, right? every transaction being put in with more data around the transaction. So you truly can cut, slice and dice, flip and turn the information that you have, which will help you make better decisions going forward. Without that visibility, it's pretty hard. How did you find those first few customers? So besides the relationships at at Columbia, which got me my first few, it became referrals, PwC, former colleagues, other professionals that knew what we were doing and it just became referrals and referrals was the greatest source of clients for us and frankly still is i was just going to ask um has that changed still is do you remember your very first day yes what was that like i remember the very first first day i had to meet with a client at a we work i'd never seen a we work i saw a sign somewhere but i didn't know what it was so i went oh, oh this is pretty interesting but even then, I thought there was only one. And the second gig was at a different WeWork. I was like, oh, there's more than one. If you ever been in WeWork, they're just full of businesses, just people launching businesses. So that was another thing. Like, I'm around all these people who are trying to launch businesses, and they would constantly have events around entrepreneurship and building businesses. And that's another thing. Few, Rarely did you find one around finance. Did you end up having a WeWork membership? at some point or? I did. Okay. And did that turn into a good networking referral source? Another good networking source, right? Because you have business, businesses of that size. And when you come to find out that they're even larger companies who are taking offices in a WeWork because of its flexibility, because the atmosphere, there's a bit of a culture. There was a bit of a culture there at the time and entrepreneurial folks tend to like it. You know, you go in the building and it's just full of businesses. New York City has the most WeWork offices in the, on the planet. So there were many. So I started to run the WeWork circuit. So your very first day, you got a meeting at a WeWork. And had you already like signed a contract with this group and you were launching with business? Or was this more of a get to know you and let's see if we can work together kind of a situation? It was more of get to know you, really. This is what our situation is. You know, it was a founder who, it was not her first one. She founded another company. She was part of a founder group with another company that did very well. And somewhere along the lines with that firm, they had, they're trying to raise capital and were having a hard time doing it because their books weren't in order. So they ran into some trouble. And she learned enough from that lesson that she should not get behind that way again. So she wanted it done right from the beginning. And that's how we started with them. And how long did it take you guys to hammer out your first contract with them? Yeah, I think we were 
I had the meeting within a week. We were signed, we were engaged, and off we went. Getting them to just set up the just infrastructure, understanding what they had, infrastructure, getting to think about how to look at the business because there's information here and there's information there that you should probably be looking at as well. And off we went. You had your first client in a week. Most founders, I mean, it might take months or even longer to get that first deal. Was that a big confidence booster for you, knowing that you were going to have a paycheck or at least revenue coming in right out of the gate? I think that was helpful, right? So you know you had some some cash flow. Their expenses were low. It's just me. But I think I wasn't satisfied with just that, right? I'm not, I wasn't satisfied with going in there and just doing what someone asked me to do. I wanted to provide a solution that was broader because I saw this issue. If they had that issue, many of these companies have this issue. So how do you build something that is really impactful, that can really give these companies a start? You know, when I was in M&A, part of the thing that I needed to do is look at the quality of earnings and, you know, companies are valued on a multiple to EBITDA, right? So every dollar that I find for which they're not going to get credit, it's not really a dollar. It's a multiple of that dollar. And when you don't have your, I felt that my job was to ask you three questions you couldn't answer. And if I ask you three finance questions around your financials that can cause doubt about their accuracy, that purchase price was going down. There's a bit of shame looking at it from the other side because here are founders who look to build a business. They put all their heart and soul into this business. And because their financial act isn't together, it could really cost them. I think that's tragic. The businesses that you were working with at the start or maybe even today, are they businesses that are bringing you in knowing that there is an exit in the near term? Or are you coming into organizations at you know, all stages of growth? Yeah, I would say that today, the companies that we work with are more, they're more growth oriented. So they're not really the early stage startups, but they're companies that are growing fast, have high aspirations, big plans. They've got you know, they've been through a couple rounds, this series A, B, C. They've been acquired by a private equity firm. They're doing roll-ups. So they're doing more strategic things. And those are the companies that we tend to work with today. So I think further along than the ones I worked with before, but I think what we're offering caters well to these companies. So you land your first deal in a week. What was the growth like from there? Yeah, I think you, you know, it's kind of a slow and steady, right? First of all, do no harm. Second of all, you're building, you're kind of understanding what's happening out there. And you are certainly want to service your client well, but you also want to protect the brand, right? Because the brand is, a, the, I was the brand, right? So very careful not to do anything that would, would harm them. But before you know it, I couldn't keep up by myself. So I hired the first person, the second person, and, and just built even thinking through our internal human capital model to really get these things, get these things done in the way that I thought they needed to be done for this segment of client. And that's when I started looking for offshore operations, technologies that really supported the function, really putting in analytics and business intelligence into the work that we do which was taking these companies beyond what they were traditionally getting from the finance function. So how far into the business was it that you made that first and second and third hire? 
I think I had my first hire within a year, and we went on for a little while together. Can't remember exactly when, you know, was it another six months or, or 10 months later where we, where we had the third? But then things started to, to grow rather quickly. And I think when COVID hit, it just really opened the floodgates as companies started to realize that they needed to really understand their company. They needed to get on the cloud for those who weren't on because they need to operate even when they couldn't go in their offices. They needed to be able to understand and look at various scenarios for how they're going to manage through this uncertainty that everyone was going through. You know, you can't really analyze your numbers because it takes you so long to get them. They realized quickly that that was not a good way to run your finance function. So we got a lot of work then. In terms of your first few hires, you know, advice that, that I've heard given out uh, over the years, a lot of people tell you that the first person you need to hire is an admin person to help with the task that, you know, detracting from you growing the business. Based on kind of what you just described, it sounds like the first few hires were more Hectors that were out there actually doing the work. Is that a fair assessment? That is fair. It definitely wasn't an admin. It was, I needed more brain power and capabilities to service our clients because the demands were getting, they were getting high. They were asking a lot of us stuff that I couldn't do on or just wasn't enough time. So I didn't worry about admin. I was doing those things myself. But quickly, we had to build the team to support because the projects were getting larger and the demands were getting higher. And it was a really great thing because you think you're going in for this, but then they realize what you can do. And then they ask you, what, what about this? Can you help me with this? Can you help me with that? And then they tell someone and you get another call. So quickly, we had to ramp up the team. Me making my first hire was one of the absolute most difficult decisions that I have ever made in running this business. It sounds like for you, it was very, it was an easy decision. It was a very clear decision. We we have to do this. Was it difficult to find that first hire, those first few hires? It's still difficult to find talent. It was difficult then. It's difficult now. I don't see that changing primarily because you want to find certainly people with the technical capabilities, but you also, when you're a small team, cultural fit is really important, right? You don't want it to be a revolving door. Loses time is not good for you. It's not good for them. But you really want to find the team that's going to be around for a while. You invest a lot in these folks when you hire them. It takes them a while to ramp up and be as productive, you know, reach productivity, you know, optimal productivity. So you have to make these decisions very carefully. So it's a tight labor market. And maybe back in 2016, 17, it was not quite as tight. But how did you present a compelling offer a compelling reason for that first person to join. I mean, I I think about it. I've worked for big companies. I work for small companies. And sometimes with the smaller companies, you're kind of going, hmm, you know, am I going to get a paycheck? You know, what did you do to attract that talent? You know, interestingly enough, I think there are a lot of people who want to be involved in something entrepreneurial. They want to feel that they've been part of something. They're not just there carrying on and no one cares, right? But they feel close to what, what is happening and they know that they've been able to leave, leave their mark on what exists. And my commitment to them is that we're going to do some great things. We're going to, I'm going to bring them along for the ride. They're going to learn not only doing things from an accounting perspective, but they're going to look at things in all these different businesses. And we're going to see some really cool 
businesses. And I think it's time, look, for me, just the whole entrepreneurial thing was really taking off, right? You hear a lot about it. Everyone wanted an be an entrepreneur, right? Wanted to be in tech, wanted to go out on their own and just were, let's say, disenchanted with some of the experiences they had had at larger firms. So I listened for those things during interviews. Did you find people through your network? Did you find people through job boards, LinkedIn, getting people to your website and applying there? Certainly found people through the network, but there was a point where I had to hire a part-time recruiter to help me find time. It just wasn't fast enough in terms of the talent pool. And I needed someone to, I still had work to do, right, every day. So I needed someone to screen them first because I couldn't spend all my time doing that. So I hired someone to help me identify talent, screen them and work through them through the negotiations to the point where then I needed to hire a permanent recruiter, an HR person. Tell me about the name Quantum. What inspired that? Why not name it, you know, Perez Consulting? Well, you know, as I thought about the issues that were out there in the space, quant because it's math, right? And accounting is associated with math. But quantum was all science as well. And so quantum kind of brought those two together because it was about the math around accounting, but also it was about science and data science. And I thought those two worlds needed to come together. And every day I was seeing how that was part of the issue that I was seeing. Those two worlds weren't coming together and the gap was widening every day. So I came up with quantum and the FBI stands for finance and business intelligence, again, because those two worlds need to come together. The world of finance and data must come together because that's the modern day finance function. Took a long time though. I love that. And for our listeners, the, the name of the company is actually Quantum FBI, not just Quantum. So that's the FBI reference there. Well, thanks for sharing that. So when you started the business, I guess talk a little bit more about the vision for how the company was going to, you know, grow and and what the service offering was going to be like and and maybe how does that early vision compare with what you're doing today? Is it pretty close or were there things that you discovered along the way that you are doing different? Yeah. So at first, you know, I thought I was just going to be a senior finance person giving advice to these companies. As I stated, when you look at their numbers and you say, okay, this is what's happening and you present a solution and they say, no, that's not, you know, you get around the rest of the management team and they say, that's not, that's not correct. Uh, I said, it is correct. These are the numbers. And they said, yes, I understand. You believe it's correct, but the numbers are wrong. That showed me that there was a much broader issue, a much bigger issue. You, many companies couldn't even get their numbers right. And that happened on a couple of occasions. That's when I knew I had to expand it. You know, again, garbage in, garbage out. So we needed to create a firm that was able to help companies, A, get the basics right, and then B, embrace data and solve for those issues that they were having. They didn't have the talent, they didn't have the budget, and they didn't know where to start. So the idea is you partner with us, we have the talent, we are a group of finance professionals that are technology enabled and data driven. And it would take a company a long time to build that. And it would be costly to do that. But we've got that dialed up. So we, we work with these finance folks in a combination of a team that's US-based and based out of in a near shore environment which keeps the cost down that then gets redeployed toward the more strategic things that a finance function should have. Analytics, financial planning analysis, scenario analysis, really more data, better reporting, forecasting, those types of things that 
until up till now they didn't have because they spent all their budget on the basics and weren't getting those things right. So we came up with a solution of find the right financial management platform, architect that solution with other supporting platforms, bringing the cost down because you're automating and whatever still has to be done manually, you know, you move to a lower cost environment. What you're doing is you're right-sizing or aligning the value of the exercise with the cost for the exercise. And that's where I think a lot of companies were missing it. And what we do now is become a permanent partner to them that they know that they can call in because we have the transactional folks that can support them, but we also have the senior, more technical folks that can help them with the more complex issues that a growth company is going through. And maybe just to kind of elaborate on that, Again, for people who may not be familiar with the concept, is it fair to say that you effectively become the finance and accounting office for many of your customers? We do. We become that function for many customers or partner alongside their internal team, where we either play the supporting role to the internal team or we play the more strategic role for a more junior team. But we do that, again, leveraging technology and with a data lens so that you better understand the drivers of your business. Going back to that first day, that first client and and where you are now, I think you said something a minute ago that that stuck out. It sounds like you started with the idea that you were really just going to be kind of an advisor. Is it fair to say that it evolved into this technology play and the nearshoring of manual things? Or was that the plan from the get-go? It wasn't. You know, when you're out there, one of the most important things you can do is listen to your clients and see the commonalities and understand not only where things are, but where things are going. You know, as I talked about the cloud and seeing how one client does things that is so much more efficient than the way another client does. So you are start to understand those differences, but you're also keeping on top of what the movements within the industry are. As I said, cloud, data, FP&A, the amount involved with those just different technology solutions that cater to the finance function. Being on top of those, it has really called for finance functions to evolve. So we do a lot of finance transformation work to bring these companies a modern day finance function, which is really what they need. So technology is a, a big, important piece of what, what you do. Were you a technology person before you came into this? I wasn't. I think. You know, over time, you start to learn what's happening in the space and you get familiar with different platforms that are out there. And, you know, the more you invest time into them, the more you understand and they help you understand the way things are moving. But you also build a cohort of people that are just like you with similar interests and together you evolve. Would you describe yourself more as being more of a technology firm than a services firm or more of a services firm than a technology firm? I think at our core, we are finance professionals, but we are, as I call it, technology-enabled and data-driven. And I think I don't want to minimize those things because those are the big differentiators. You can have good core finance skills, and at the heart of it, you must have those, right? But it has to be done in a more efficient and effective way. And it's got to bring down the silos that used to be up when things were on-premise that are no longer around, right? Because cloud has just changed the game. How did you develop that technology skill set? Different conferences, different platforms. We're partnered like Sage Intact. Sage Intact is, is a great company that 
kind of teaches you what's going on around this particular platform. It's cloud-based. Uh, they're looking to automate things. You know, all these platforms are looking to automate and change the way finance is done. Uh, so transforming the finance function through technology is something that every company should be thinking about. Right so let, let's talk a little bit about kind of the size and shape and structure of the, the company today. So you mentioned early on that you've got a nearshore group in Colombia and you got people in the U.S. What's kind of the breakout? How many folks do you have here in North America and how many do you have in, in Colombia? We are probably 70, 30 Colombia in terms of the mix. And they're more the folks that are doing the transactions and processing the transactions, doing day-to-day accounting. And then we have the more senior folks in the U.S. Okay. And I know certainly your your travels with PwC influenced it, but like, how did you settle on Columbia is where we're going to set up shop? Yeah, I mean, you know, whenever you're thinking about outsourcing, you tend to hear the, the typical locations, you know, you get a lot of folks going to India, you hear people talk about the Philippines. I thought it was really important if our clients were going to feel that we were an extension of their team, that we can talk when they're available to talk, that, you know, as far as they're concerned, we're just down the hall. So we needed to have a nearshore environment. And once you start looking at that, you kind of really have to, you know, kind of narrow it down to a couple of territories. And I visited a couple of territories three times each, really got to understand that market, talk to people, go to universities, talk to the private sector, talk to you know, folks in government even to really understand their economy, where they're going, uh, and certainly what the investment of the company was, just what their political environment was. And I ended up settling on, on Columbia. Did you experiment at all with the more traditional legacy offshore? I mean, did you ever try things in the Philippines and in India, or did you just know right out of the gate? I did. And, you know, it presented the types of issues that I expected it would. So I knew that just wasn't right for me for the kind of service that we were looking to provide our clients. And about when did you start the Nearshore operation? Probably four years in now. Okay. It's been going a while. I think about me personally, I got to believe there's others like me that would find the process of setting up a shop in another country as kind of overwhelming and, and daunting. You've Imagine you've got to, you know, get incorporated there, whatever their equivalent is of, of establishing, you know, a legal entity. You've got different HR requirements. You've got different payroll requirements. You've got, you know, local labor laws, all, all kinds of things. Were you nervous about that at all? Or how did you get comfortable doing that and all the mechanics that you had to learn? Yeah, I think that probably my previous experience in the region helped me out a lot, Right going through those experiences where I felt paranoid because I didn't, I wasn't sure I was going to succeed. But on the other end of it, I learned a lot and realized that I could. Gave me the confidence to do that. I didn't do anything. I visited a number of times, right? Until I was comfortable. It wasn't until I was comfortable. Yes, this can be done, but I was exploring, right? And I think that's what business building is about, right? You have to think about how to build your service what you're offering the market and how to bring that value to the market, right? The solution that you're trying to bring that typically calls for some innovative solutions, whether you're going into a new environment, a new market, using new tools, different partnership structures. I think really that's the role of a, of a CEO, right? You know, you got to solve the problems. And oftentimes 
it may not be there, or it's there in other places in a different form, right? But you've got to feel it out. I would never have done it unless I, I kicked the tires and was out there meeting people. You know, sometimes I would sit there and just look around, sit down and look around until I got comfortable. So I know that there are some, for lack of a better term, agencies out there that will help you do your filings in other countries and help you stand up an office. Did you work with somebody like that or were you rolling up your sleeves and calling people and and doing it on your own? Yeah, I think whenever you approach something like this, you have to, you know, first part is fact finding. And, you know, I'm not going to start from scratch, right? So you find these agencies, you find others who have done it, you find you know, articles, you understand what's happening in the space, you read a lot, You all the information you could find as you're doing your due diligence. And you learn a lot and then you decide, okay, this is the model that's going to work for me. That may have worked, you know, that model works for some, but for what I'm trying to build, this is the way I think makes sense. And, you know, sometimes you get it right from the beginning and sometimes you don't. But at the end of the day, you do have to know what's happening in the region. You need to make sure that you get all those things right. It can be done clearly. You may have already said everything already about it, but what advice would you give to somebody who's considering that? And I think it's also worth noting that there is a big, big movement toward nearshoring. I mean, when I think about people in my network, I bet I could name off without even thinking about it at least half a dozen people that have set up nearshore, and it seems like it's coming up in more and more conversations. So. What advice would you have for somebody who's who's thinking about doing it? Well, I think as you're coming through this, you, you have to try different things. I mean, we've got a shortage of talent in the United States as it relates to accounting and finance. And that, if you're tracking the numbers going into the profession, you know that's just going to grow, right? That shortage is going to get worse. You know, put together the baby boomers who are retiring, we're going to have a shortage of, of folks to do this work. And it's pretty important. Wall Street Journal had an article about public companies are now blaming their control deficiencies on the fact that they can't find accountants. They're putting that in their filings. So this is an issue that's coming uh, and we have to find innovative solutions and technology could be part of it, but sometimes you have to go into other markets. So my thoughts are, don't be afraid of, of these things. You've got to, you know, rather than put your arm out and say, I'm not going to do that or I can't do that. You've got to figure out how to do that. And what I found in my experience is that there are more people willing to assist you in the process than you know. You just got to ask. That's a good word. So you've been at this since 2016. Have you had any moments where you kind of looked at it and just said, pinch me? Like, are we really here? Like, has this really happened? I do have those moments. I think I have those moments because, you know, when you're first starting out, right, you're just... You're just trying to get to this place, right? And you're trying to be conservative in terms of your expectations so you don't let yourself down, right? But when you find, and this has been our experience, you go to help a client and then you went to help them on something for a couple of months and now it's been three years and you're still in there helping them with all kinds of things. And that's incredibly satisfying, but it shows how much of a need there is for the services that you provide. And once it starts, it just continues to go. Just make sure you do good work, do right by your clients. Things will be fine. One other thing I'll say is I tend to plan in short timeframes. I'm a believer of doing what you need to do today right. Every day you've got to get today right. 
And one day turns into a week, a week turns into a month, a month turns into a year. Get these things right. Do the right things every day. And they just add up. They just add up. And for me, that's a little bit easier to digest. And it has served me well. So a lot of entrepreneurs I, I talk to, ones that have, have grown and the companies become more than than just themselves, they're, they're no longer a, a solopreneur. They've had to give up parts of the job along the way in order to grow the company. Are there parts of what you were doing in your early days that you're no longer doing now? No, interestingly enough, we've just expanded our services based on market demand. So, you know, you go in and you're doing accounting and finance, but there's more of a request on the FP&A side or on the analytics side, or you're asked, you know, can you do more in terms of interim CFOs? And we look at those things, we listen to the market and we, we assess. We have a, a team that just considers these offerings and whether it makes sense for us to get into those things or not. And sometimes we say yes, and sometimes we say no. What about for you personally? Like, does Hector's Day today look just like Hector's Day looked in 2016? Or are the kinds of activities that you're carrying out and the things that you're responsible for, has that shifted? Yeah, I definitely have people now under me that are more senior doing some of the things that I used to do, which allows me to focus more on the the firm and, and growing the firm and staying closer to the clients and really thinking about our operations more. So it definitely has expanded and I've needed to call in more senior folks to, to help me expand and, and build the firm. But I think that's just natural and it's probably the way, exactly the way it should be. What are the, the parts of the job that you still do today that just invigorate you and excite you? And then maybe on the flip side, what are those parts of the job? And I know there's gotta be some that you're just like, oh gosh, I wish I didn't have to do this. You know, staying close to the client. Client service has been my career, right? Starting out as PwC, 15 years of that stuff, other than when I was working internally, and even then the internal clients I had, I've always found that to be rewarding, right? You've got someone who's got an issue, they're looking for you to help them solve those issues. And when you come out on the other side and they're glad you were there, that's incredibly satisfying for me. So I like to engage with clients, sometimes not as much as I used to, but definitely stay close to the clients to hear where they are, what they're doing, because we've got a lot of clients doing really, really interesting things. I learn a lot from those things. So I try to keep that, although not to the same degree. Uh, The things that I find are challenging, probably talent acquisition is probably the most challenging piece of the whole thing. I love being around the team. I love spending time with them. Even in Colombia, I'm there at least once a quarter uh, engaging with the team, uh, thinking about what they want in terms of career development, encouraging them to come up the way I came up, right? Because these are folks who are trying to become better professionals. And I'm out a lot after what I was taught at Beatles. So getting around them was important. But the talent acquisition piece has got to be the most challenging for sure. What role has been the most difficult to hire for? I think just, you know, the more senior they are, the harder it is to hire for, for sure. But mid-level manager, I mean, the need out there is so strong. They're really hard to hire for. So you've got to find new ways of incentivizing them and keeping them focused and know that someone else is knocking on their door too. That's an excellent point someone else is knocking on their door too. So has there been anything that you have 
tried that has not worked out like you hoped it would or expected it to? I think on the on the finance side, you know, you come up with this strategy, you think this is exactly the solution that they need. And sometimes they didn't take to it as they weren't as enthused as I was about the solution. It called for me to approach it a different way. Sometimes you have to meet them where they are. They're not ready for that yet. But you know you can still help them. Okay, we just have to back it up. Let's start with where you are. And we'll get a multi-phase plan to get you where I think you need to be. And I think when you approach it that way and you're on the same wavelength, it's not about me, it's about them. And you want to get them there. So as you build trust, things get easier. When they see that things are possible, when they see that they're better able to bring that value to the business, which really is what they want to do, right? We're here to support the business, right? Finance is my business, but most businesses, finance is not their business, right? So our job as finance professionals is primarily to support the core business. And so that's what we need to do. Understand what the needs of the business are and build something to support that business and help our clients do that. Our worlds aren't that far apart. In fact, we partner together on on some things, but I think this will resonate for you. It's really, it can be really frustrating to be in this consultative position and see what's going on with an outsider's set of eyes and and say, no, I've, I've seen this before at other places. And this really is what you need to do. It's really hard when the client doesn't quite see the vision and take to it the way that you you want them to. It's you can lead them to water, but you can't make them drink. Right. You know, I, I have a view on those kinds of things. You know, sometimes you just have to get them to neutral, right? Don't try to get them all the way there. Get them to neutral, get them open and show them. And once you start showing them, they'll get there. They'll, they'll get there. They're, don't give anyone anything they don't think they need and things will be they'll they'll be much more receptive i think to things as you bring them up and it's just you know the way i've learned over time i'm passionate about it and they're just not quite that passionate about it you know focus on the business issues and you can get there if knowing what you know today if you were going back and starting over what would you do different That's a question that comes around a lot. This is a journey. I don't tend to, I would have done this. I I think you're learning along the way. That's this part of this whole process. You know, I might've started sooner. I might've started sooner because, you know, as I said, M&A work was the most grueling, probably the best work I'd ever done to that point. And I think much greater pride in what we've been able to do now than that. It just feels different. And you understand the value that you're bringing to these companies, companies that are doing really great things. Maybe going back to family for just a second, what does your wife do now uh, with Columbia MBA and what is your family like? My wife is senior finance person at BNY Mellon. So she was a business line CFO for, for a time and now she's working on some major projects. I won't get into to details on that stuff, but she works in the, at a big bank, global bank. And you guys have kids? Yeah, so we got three girls, two grandchildren, girls too. And they keep me pretty busy. That's great. How has being a business owner shaped your family or, or impacted your family? That's another one of these benefits, right? I do travel quite a bit, uh, getting out to clients and you know how it is, conferences and clients and different things that you have to be out there for. 
But I get to walk my kids to school just about every day, which is great. It allows me to do that. And it also allows them to see me and what I do. And we have a lot of conversations about that. We have a lot of conversations around building businesses because I do think it's um, it's an option for people more than they they think. And I think a lot of folks are interested in it, but don't know how to go about it. And I like that they get to see both sides, right? They get to see their mom who's in corporate and their dad who's an entrepreneur. So they get to see both worlds there. If a budding entrepreneur came to you today and said, hey, I'm thinking about doing something, what advice would you give them? If you really want to do it, go for it. Just eyes wide open, right? For me, you know, it was the kind of thing where when I started to do this thing, I didn't apply to anything because I didn't want to get lured away by by the money. As far as I was concerned, I was burning the ships. This is what I'm doing in the second half. And it gives me great satisfaction. So I encourage anyone who truly wants to do it to go for it. And, you know, as we know, it doesn't always work out for everyone, right? But I think the process is one that will you will learn from, will develop you as a, you know, as a professional, as a person. Uh, you'll learn a lot about yourself as you go through this thing. But it's been a fantastic journey for me, and I look forward to con- continuing it and continuing to grow the firm. What's next for Hector, and what's next for Quantum FBI? Yeah, I mean, continuing to work on our clients. As I said, we launched this intro CFO side of the house now. Uh, a lot of questions about that, interest in that. That's great. We're continuing to bring this value to our clients. I think the finance industry is still changing in massive ways. Uh, you know, you've got AI and how that's going to impact the finance space. So there's no shortage of things to get up to speed on. And my hope is that we can bring that all of that to a client who, um, you know, may not have the time to be on top of all these new technological advancements as it relates to finance. But the finance makes its way through just about every single thing at a company, one way, shape, or form. That's going to show up through through financial statements some way. Really uniquely positioned to see how we can help a company understand what's driving that company and help their plan in the future. So I'm sticking to that. Is there anything that you had hoped to talk about that we haven't covered yet? I think. I want to hear about your podcast and, and the great idea, because I think this is a really great thing. And when we were prepping for this, you talked about how one of the ones that we like, you know, we, we both listen to kind of gives a particular perspective. But I like this perspective because I think it would have been valuable even to me as I was coming up to hear someone who's in the in the thick of it, which is really great name, in the thick of it. And it, it's really encouraging. And I think it gives folks the, um, you know, for some it'll give them what they need to make the decision to go forward. So I think it's it's a great thing you're doing for many aspiring entrepreneurs out there uh, because sometimes they just need that. They need to hear from a regular person and what their journey was like. So I think it's great. Thank you. Well, Hector, thank you so much for being a guest and uh, we look forward to sharing your story with the world. Great, Scott. Thanks for having me. Thank you. That was Hector Perez, founder and CEO of Quantum FBI. To learn more, visit quantumfbi.com. If you or a founder you know would like to be a guest on In the Thick of It, email us at intro at founderstory.us.